Today's episode of Start Somewhere is called Listen to Your Mom! Exclamation point. A memoir by Aaron Steinmetz. On February 15, 1995, I received from my ninth grade English teacher, Mrs. Koenig, a writing assignment. I was to write a story. I remember a few details of this assignment. Whether there were any specific vocabulary words I had to use or any particular bullet points I had to include, I do not recall. I considered this work one of my greatest ever, as it clocked in at almost five pages long. Double-spaced. I remember few details about this story because I was 15 years old when I wrote it in 1995. And now, well, it's 2021. Do the math. At 15 years old, I believed I had written something brilliant, something hysterical, something people would read and share and all the while roll on the floor laughing out loud before there were even initials for that action. I remember few details, but one detail stands out. I was pandering. I decided to deliberately write a story that would arouse my teacher's motherly instincts and show that I was a well-rounded boy, believing that that well-roundedness would ensure me an A. I got a B-. minus. Mrs. Koenig, I'm confident, was quite used to student pandering. Also, I wrote her into the story as a character. Not sure how she felt about that. I really should be careful not to do that again. This pandering piece of peculiar pablum is called Listen to Your Mom! Exclamation point. Seriously, I put an exclamation point in the title. I'm not making this up. Well, okay, I, I was making this up 26 years ago, but now, in this Back to the Futurian future, a time when we talk to pocket-sized computers and vehicles drive themselves, but for some reason we still don't have flying cars or sex bots, I am staring at a short story title with an exclamation point, and my name is attached to it. Just for fun, I will read this story as it is written with grammar errors included. Steady yourselves, brave listeners, and brace for impact. This is gonna hurt. I present, listen to your mom. Exclamation point. Chapter 1. As we moved toward the burning flame at a speed unknown to mankind because of its intensity of power and depth and, quote, hair ripped out of your head, end quote, speed, I reflected on the question burning in my head. Why didn't I listen to mom? My whole life flashes before my eyes. I am moving down a dark tunnel. Blurred yet familiar voices echo inside, and a lady yelling in pain. I am moving faster, and faster, and faster, and faster, when suddenly a bright light shines in my eyes, and... Not that far back, Aaron, Mrs. Koenig said. To set the mood, the reader should have my life's story, I protested. Yeah, well, we don't have that kind of time, Mrs. Koenig replied. Just start it from when the event first started. Oh, all right, I said, and I'll do it in third person to add the effect. That's fine, she finished. By the way, is this story true? Nope, Aaron said. It's fake all through. The classroom in which we were placed fades away to a dark world of curiosity and wonder of what will appear to invade such a calming sense of blank, when out of the black appears the outline of a white house, and the hissing sound of silence is invaded by the sound of two young voices, a boy and a girl, laughing while the setting appears as the inside the above-mentioned house. So, the girl says, 
Will your parents be home soon? Oh yeah, the boy replied. They'll be home in three seconds. What do you mean, she asked. They can't possibly be home in... Hi, we're home. And suddenly, the pleasure she once felt was invaded with an overwhelming sense of anger toward a certain person who had, very wrongly, disobeyed a direct instruction emitting from the mouth of the mother, Aaron and Bambi. I told you not to see her again. Oh, come on, Mom, Aaron protested. We were just going to sleep together. Nothing you didn't do in the 60s. Yeah, well, we were stoned out of our minds, and you must be out of yours to have anything to do with this little thing, she yelled. Now I want you to get her out of my house right now, and I don't want to see you with her again. As Aaron led Bambi out of the house, one question burned his head. Why am I dating her? Inside Bambi's, well, limited mind, one, and only one, thought was in there. How do I meet this totally sexy and cool guy again, for sure? Then she speaks. How do I meet you, such a totally sexy and cool guy again? She then adds a pointless, for sure. How about midnight at Suckface Hill, he says. Oh, how romantic, she says. I'm there. She gets into her Pinto, and as she drives off, all that's heard is of Pintos and fire hydrants combing, and the voice of Aaron mumbling things about driver's licenses, and the incompetencies of driving school teachers. Chapter 2 As the darkness of night envelops the world, the setting changes to the top of a hill, only to hear the sound of two voices laughing and seeing a car bouncing up and down. Aaron and Bambi drive past those two people. The two continue driving until they reach their own secluded spot. Well, Bambi says, you want to get started? Sure. As they move toward each other, they are abruptly stopped by a strap so conveniently wrapped around their bodies. Let's take these off, Aaron says. Good thinking, she replies. They make a second attempt, but, in the dark, Aaron gets poked in the side by something sticking up from the car. Ow! Here, I'll get that. It pushes down, and they continue moving toward each other while the car itself decides the original placement was not good, so it starts moving down the hill. Bambi? Yeah? Are we moving? Um, yes. You know that thing that was sticking up and you pushed down was? Um, yeah, that was the parking brake. Okay, so push down on the other brake. It doesn't work. I've always stopped with the parking brake. Well, then push the parking brake down. Oh, right. She pushes it down, and all that's heard are a screeching sound, a braking sound, and the two of them saying, "Uh Uh-oh. They look down on the city below, and they see before them a house afire and fire engines heading to it. As they move toward the flame at a speed unknown to mankind, because of its intensity of power and depth and hair-ripped-out-of-your-head speed, Aaron reflects on the question burning in his mind. Why didn't I listen to Mom? He then comes up with an idea. Let's jump out of the car. It just rained, and the ground is soft. Saying nothing, she jumps out of the car, soon followed by Aaron. They roll for a few seconds and stop. They get up to see the car suddenly veer to the right because of a small hill, and then slow to a calm and smooth stop in a vat of sand. Well, it could have been worse. We could have broken a bone or something, Aaron said. That was kind of fun, she replied. And as they walk turn toward their homes, they say their goodbyes, and Aaron thinks if he had only listened to his mom, then he would never have had to risk his life for his ex-girlfriend. As the setting slowly fades to a darkness, much like the one before, only one thing is seen as the world returns to a dismal nothing. The End 
<sighs> wow. And my name is attached to this. Ugh. A couple things jumped out at me as I read it. I remember now adding the, quote, house afire part near the end because I had started the story mentioning flames and felt obligated to have some kind of flames. It never occurred to me to just remove the flames from the beginning when I never found a logical place for them in the story. I'm also amused by the fact that they first push down the parking brake to release the brake, and then push it down again to re-engage it. I plead ignorance, as I wouldn't become a regular driver for another two years following this story. I vaguely recall, while working on this, asking my teacher what the sound of a braking parking brake would sound like. Hey, I was doing my research. I also remember Mrs. Koenig's name wasn't spelled the way it was spoken, so none of us in class could pronounce it correctly until she explained how to pronounce it an act she was likely quite used to doing by then. She spells it the same way as Walter Koenig, also known as Chekhov, so if you want the spelling, look for it in the credits of Star Trek. In fairness, I don't think I came up with the term Suckface Hill. I probably heard it on a television show. In those days, I was unabashedly ripping off other people. I mean, I still do that now, just abashedly. A couple other points of brilliance I was extremely proud of at the time. I thought mentioning that I was shifting to third person in the beginning, and then going from I said to Aaron said, was a stroke of literary genius for some reason. I also thought suddenly referring to Bambi, I can't believe I called her that, suddenly referring to her as his ex-girlfriend with no mention of them breaking up, was also brilliant. In actuality, they were both pretty sloppy. Rife with tense shifting and needless perspective changes, listen to your mom exclamation point is a particularly low, low point in my development. But I felt I could redeem this story. I wanted to preserve the hyperbolic nature of the first draft in a more plausible setting. I chose a father telling a bedtime story to his daughter. This newer draft abandons quite a bit from the first. The father and daughter both go unnamed. It's mostly dialogue in the daughter's bedroom. It is a story loosely inspired by the first draft and little more. Here's the second version, entitled, Listen to Your Mom. Without an exclamation point. She's too smart for this, I think, as I step into her bedroom and flick on the light switch. But I'll try anyway. I'm not about to let this slip through a father's fingers, no matter how smart this kid's getting. Well, I say, as I crouch next to her bed, tonight's story starts with a little girl seated at the dinner table. I'm the daughter, right? Too darn smart for her own darn good, darn it. No, I lie. Some other girl, in another town. What town? The town of Sand. Francisco. Sand Francisco? She's incredulous, for sure, just like her mother. Daddy, we live in San Francisco, and it isn't a town. It's a city. Well, this girl lives in Sand Francisco, and it's a small town. And she was seated at the dinner table. And you know what? She wouldn't eat her vegetables. That's right, I exclaim with faux amusement. Have you heard this story before? I was seated at the dinner table ten minutes ago, and I didn't eat my vegetables. Hmm, really? Well, now that's an astonishing coincidence, isn't it? And Mom sent me to bed because I wouldn't eat them, and I left them on the table. You were there when it happened, Daddy. Well, that has nothing at all to do with my story. Do you want to know what happened to that little girl in San Francisco? Her daddy told her a story about herself? Nope. She didn't listen to her mom, and she didn't eat her vegetables, too. And she grew up with weak bones. 
and a slow mind, unable to grasp even the most basic of ballet moves. She wanted to be a ballerina, you know. I do know, Daddy, because this story is about me. Your stories are always about me. And when she failed at ballerina-ing, she was distraught and disheveled. I don't know what that means. Not important. She wandered the streets in a nameless haze, in a haphazard fugue state, unable to hold down a job or meet a man or buy a house or a car or... Daddy, if I promise to eat my vegetables, will you stop telling me this story? I smile, lift the cold plate of food I'd been hiding beneath her bed, and hand it to her. She glances at the plate and then at me, clearly not expecting to have to hold her promise so quickly. She then sits up on her elbows in the bed, sighs, and grabs the fork. (laughs) Yeah, she's smart, and little tricks like this won't work much longer. And I know she'll be a great ballerina someday. They're cold, she grumbles through a mouthful of green beans. Too bad, I reply. But only if she eats her vegetables. The end. Cute, cheeky, delightful. It's the kind of feel-good story you'd expect to see on a sitcom. It's a much more believable piece, if a bit light on narrative and character development. I mean, they don't even have names, just labels. I can assume the role of the father, since it's in the first person, even if I don't have kids. And I like that I depict myself in a much more favorable light. Seriously, I don't come off well in the first draft. Not on the page, and not above it. My depiction of Bambi in the first draft, there's not a little accidental misogyny in there. And this second draft leaves me wanting. I really wanted to get into Bambi's head and see the story from her perspective. What came out was something, well, as Monty Python would put it, completely different. Here's the darker third version, entitled Exclamation Point. Bobby waited in the cold, dressed in her newest skirt, shivering on the front porch. She turned and looked at the lowering sun through the leafless trees, the shouts of Aaron's mother penetrating the front door like a battering ram, the sting of her words like splinters in her ears. Aaron's mother didn't like her. She didn't even pretend to. They hadn't been dating for long, merely a month that had flown by in a whirlwind and yet had seemed like an eternity at the same time. Her first love, and she wasn't even sure if Aaron loved her. Certainly his mother didn't. And where the mother went, so too would he. She turned to leave, but the lock turned over. Her shoulders clenched as the door opened, but Aaron stepped out, threw his arm around her shoulder and said, Come on, Bambi! Aaron said it a little louder than he usually spoke to her. Don't call me that, she muttered. I hate that name. Let's go for a drive, Aaron said, either unhearing or uncaring. Bobby didn't know which. Aaron hurried to the car. He was excited to be driven, would be more excited in the coming year when he would receive his own driver's license. He continued speaking in a voice imitating the local disc jockey. Let's go to exclamation point. A peninsula, Bobby thought. Though she did concede the small island at the end of that long, straight peninsula in the lake did make the landmass look, from the sky, like that particular form of punctuation she was beginning to loathe. Especially in titles. I hate exclamation points, she muttered as she lowered herself into her dilapidated pinto. Since when? Aaron replied as he slammed shut the passenger door. We had a good time last time we were there. Bobby revved the engine and sped away from the house. Whoa, slow down, Bambi, Aaron said. You can't get another ticket. You're not my father, Bobby replied, and stop calling me that. 
Calling you what? Bambi. I hate that nickname. Her father gave it to her years before when he would say things like, Listen to your mom. Not as a way to direct her toward a well-rounded life, but as a way to deflect her, send her out of his sight so he could return to his whiskey and television pairing. And that mom she would have to listen to, well, she would listen, or the lit cigarette would do the talking. She thought she was doing me a favor by keeping the scars out of sight, Bobby said, shaking her head, her hands trembling on the steering wheel. Huh? Aaron said. Slow down, Bambi. We're in a residential district. Bobby laughed. She was just covering her tail, so Child Protective Services wouldn't have thrown her in jail. But hey, she turned to look at Aaron with wild eyes. At least I still have this pretty face. Um, you okay, Bambi? Bambi was a boy, Bobby stated. He just sounded like a girl. She floored the engine, ran a red light, leading them into the interstate. The lake was already visible in the distance, and they were approaching it at near triple-digit speed. The speedometer stopped at 80, and Bobby was burying the needle. Glancing between the road ahead of them and her shaking hands and heavy breathing, Erin finally thought to ask, Is something wrong? Bobby shook her head in short, spastic gestures that seemed more like a nervous tick than a response. She was like a mother to me, she said, tears building up in her eyes. I thought I finally found a mother who wouldn't burn me. She pulled off the interstate at the exit and followed the sign to exclamation point, slowing just enough to make the turn and run the stop sign. Okay, seriously, Bambi, you're starting to piss me off. Stop calling me that. Fine, Bobby, Roberta, slow down already. Bobby grinned maniacally. Think we can make the jump? (laughs) What? They were pointed down the peninsula, rising high above the water on both sides. Speeding down the road turned gravel. They passed several cars parked, some to enjoy the view, others to engage in less public activities. I think we'll make the jump, Bobby said. I think we'll make it. No one's made the jump in a car, Bobby, Aaron said. Just dirt bikes, and they were professionals. No one's made the jump in a crappy Pinto. So get out, Bobby said with a shrug. It rained. The ground is nice and soft. You'll do just fine. Aaron grappled for the parking brake, yanking up on it. A cable beneath them snapped, the loose handle for the parking brake falling back into place. Aaron looked up at Bobby, who was staring across the dash with wild eyes. You're crazy, Aaron said. My mother was right about you. Her lips tightened, a sneer breaking through them as she turned to Aaron and said, Get out. Unlatching his seatbelt, Aaron didn't take his eyes off her, opened the door. He held his breath as he jumped from the car rolling, tumbling, and disappearing into a cloud of dust in Bobby's rearview mirror. She floored the gas pedal. The jump, a naturally occurring ramp in the dirt, was close. The island, not far. A perfect landing spot. She felt the car lift, heard the engine rev as the front wheels spun free with only air to slow them. The sun was in her eyes, blazing bright with light flames, low on the horizon. And then it was gone. The last thing she saw was the water of the lake speeding towards her. Then darkness. She heard before she saw the nurse. But what she heard she could not discern. Her ears were cloudy, and she felt her stomach lurch, gagging. Something plastic was in her mouth. She felt strong hands hold her down as the plastic tube slid out. There you are, a kind voice said. 
As Bobby's vision returned, she saw the woman in her late 40s and all around her an emergency room dating back to the 40s. Sorry about the intubation tube. You came back faster than we thought you would. Is he alive? Bobby whispered, her voice gravelly, her throat sore. Your boyfriend? the nurse asked. Yes, barely. With several broken bones, but you're both lucky he landed in sand at the speed you were going. Her voice trailed off as she shook her head. Ex-boyfriend, Bobby stated with a sigh. See, I went and proved his mother right. She glared at Aaron and added with sarcasm, Aaron should have listened to his mom. Everyone should listen to their mother, the nurse added. Sarcasm bled from Bobby's mouth with a sigh, and she said with sober honesty, That's good advice, nurse. Um, she peered at the name badge. Conan? Koenig, the nurse replied. Don't worry, dear. Everyone gets it wrong. The doctor will be with you shortly. When the nurse stepped away, Bobby saw Aaron in the hospital bed across from hers, his face bandaged, his arm in slings, one leg heavily bandaged and elevated. But the eyes, his eyes staring at her. Bobby sighed and said, You're in a cast and I'm still alive, so clearly we don't always get what we want in life. She shut her eyes, and she kept them shut. The end. For your consideration, Mrs. Koenig, 26 years later, the revision. Five pages. Double-spaced. This episode of Start Somewhere was written by Aaron Steinmetz and recorded by Aaron Steinmetz. For more information on Start Somewhere, head over to startsomewhere.net. If you do, you can see where I've posted the original document, scanned with all the notes included. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Start Somewhere. Expect the next episode at your own risk.